Amen. Well, it would be my joy if you would join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We started this series a few weeks back, this series about gospel power through human weakness. And this morning we're seeing a third reason why Paul writes this letter. He told us already he wrote this letter because he did not want to have another painful visit. So he sent this letter. And he also wrote this letter because he wanted to express his deep love for the people at Corinth, through the church at Corinth. But today, he said, we write this letter because we want to test your obedience. We want to see that you truly believe the gospel. We want to see that you truly walk in step with the good news of Jesus Christ by how you forgive one another. And I pray that God would teach us how to love, how to forgive, how to move towards one another as a church, as the church of Jesus Christ. We read this in chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Now if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would do what your word tells us that you love to do. That, Lord, for your people who've been justified by faith, for your people, Lord, who have the peace that passes all understanding, Lord, you say that your love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And I ask, Lord, that you would do that this morning through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that, that sinners and saints alike would know the love of God. That we would know your love without a shadow of a doubt that you, our Father in heaven, who so loved us that you gave your only Son for us and that we'd be overwhelmed by your grace and love and forgiveness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's more than one way to skin a cat. It's a weird saying, but people say it. There's more than one way to skin a cat. There's more than one way that means to do something. And there's more than one way to kill a church. One of the most common ways to kill a church is through unaddressed sin, through unrepentant sin. It's a church that never talks about sin, never talks about holiness, never calls people to repentance. 
hearts. It's a church that allows you to, to come every Sunday and feel comfortable in your sin, content in your sin, with, without ever calling you to forsake it. It's a church that, that will never confront your idols and never call you to crush them. It's a church where someone can sin, can sin egregiously, repeatedly, unrepentantly, without even caring, and nothing is ever said. Sadly, churches like this exist all over the place. Churches that sing a lot about God in general, a generic God, but sing nothing about Jesus and about His cross and about His precious blood that wipes away sin. Churches that sing a lot about victory and power and your dreams coming true, but not a lot about victory over sin, victory over hell. Churches where you can hear sermons about how Jesus wants to make all your dreams come true, how Jesus really exists for you, but nothing about Jesus taking away your sin on a cross. Jesus hanging on a cross, bearing your wrath that you deserved in your place. This is serious. Heaven forbid, heaven forbid that we would ever be a church like this. That we would be a church where people can stay comfortable in their sin. Heaven forbid we would be a church that would be Scared to call sin, sin. That we'd hold back from calling people to repentance when just as we heard Carter pray, when repentance leads to true joy in Jesus, why would we hold that back? No, the Lord tells us clearly in His Word, loud and clearly, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's why Paul, in the first letter, 1 Corinthians, wrote, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He said, Did you not know that a little sin can, can spread through and corrupt the whole church? That's why in 1 Corinthians 5, when a man was having an immoral relationship with a stepmom, he tells the church, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We're called to be holy as he is holy, to be serious about sin, not comfortable in our sin. But there's another way that we can kill the church. There's another way to kill the church. It's not only being unwilling to call people to repent. It's being unwilling to forgive people when they do repent. And it's just as deadly. And it's just as destructive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. To be unwilling to welcome the sinner home. To be unwilling to restore them back, it's just as deadly. 
That's what Paul's great concern here is in our passage. We don't know much about the man he's talking about. We, we don't know why he caused Paul so much pain. And even Paul says why he caused the whole church so much pain. Some scholars think it might be the man from 1 Corinthians 5 who was in an immoral relationship. Some people think it's a leader in the church who caused great disunity and questions, questioned Paul's authority. But what we do know is that whoever this man is, it's clear that now he's repenting. And it's critical how the church, it's critical to the life of the church and the witness of the gospel how this church is going to respond. See, we can deny the gospel by being unwilling to call people to repent. And yes, that will destroy a church. But we can be just we can just as easily deny the gospel by being unwilling to welcome people back who repent. By extending love and forgiveness and shower grace upon them just like their Savior showers it upon them. Will we be a church that doesn't water down the call to be holy and who welcomes back the sinner who repents. Dane Ortland in his commentary says this, When a sinner within the church is unrepentant, the church must protect the people from the sinner, and he must be excommunicated. But when a sinner within the church is repentant, the church must protect the sinner from the people. So this morning, from, from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I want us to learn how do we restore those who repent? How do we welcome back those that the Lord welcomes back to himself? How do we lavish grace upon people like Jesus lavishes those who come back to him? Again, we don't know any details about the specific situation. That Paul's addressing. The, the only thing we know is that he's caused pain to Paul and the church. And we know that the majority of the church took action by disciplining him due to his unrepentance. That should remind us of Matthew 18 when Jesus tells us, call a man to repent. And if he doesn't repent, two or more go to him and call him to repent. But if he still doesn't repent, bring him before the church and treat him like a Gentile or a tax collector. But the last detail that we can assume from Paul's words, from Paul's forgiveness, from Paul's grace, is that this brother is now repenting. He is now turned back to Jesus. And so I'm glad that we don't have a lot of details about this situation. It's a good thing that we don't know who exactly he's talking about in this passage because really this can be applied to any sinner who repents. Any sinner. 
Any sinner who repents, any sinner, any, anyone who has an affair, anyone who steals, anyone who causes division, anyone who gossips, anyone who blows up on a brother in Christ, anyone who turns against a sister in Christ, this passage says any sinner who repents should be welcomed back, should be forgiven, should be loved. That's the first step that we see in this passage is, is that we should, he says, reassure them of forgiveness. Reassure them. Once someone repents, once someone turns from their sin, you should forgive them of the wrong they've done. Now this passage says nothing about the relationship being the exact same says nothing about restoring them to a position. It says nothing about reestablishing trust the same way. It simply calls us to forgive any sinner of any sin who truly repents and turns to Jesus. One of my favorite verses about forgiveness is 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Listen to what it says. It says, if we confess our sins... He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This verse promises that, that God is faithful and just to forgive you of any sin that you would confess to him. And not, and not just forgive you of all of your sins. It also says that he'll also cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That's good news. That if you would today, even earlier when we were confessing our sins, confess our sins to the Lord, He doesn't just forgive them, but He washes you clean. He makes you new. He makes you free again in Him. What this passage says is, if God would not forgive you of your sin. He would be unfaithful and unjust. Meaning, if he didn't forgive you of your sin, he would have to be, he would have to quit being God. Because that's who he is. And that's how he forgives those who turn from their sins and trust in him. But what's it say about us when God's people are unwilling? to forgive what God is willing to forgive. What's that say about the church when we are unwilling to forgive what God is willing to forgive? What's it say when a holy God says, I'll forgive you, but we say, I'm not sure I'm going to let that go. It can't be that we're more holy than God is. When we're unwilling to forgive, it can't mean that we are more holy than God is. No, it means that we're less gracious than God is. It's like when we're praying the Lord's Prayer. We say, it's like we're saying, forgive us of our trespasses that we are unwilling to forgive in others who trespass against us. Should we pray that? Would we pray that? 
Father, forgive us of our trespasses that we are unwilling to forgive in others who trespasses against us. If we prayed that prayer, we should not expect that forgiveness from our God. Who are we to be unwilling to forgive those who God has joyfully and graciously forgiven in Jesus? Do you know what it means for God to forgive you? Do you know what it means when God says that he forgives someone? When God said, says he forgives you, what he means with these images in the Old Testament of, of putting your sin at the bottom of the ocean floor, of removing your sin as far as the east is from the west, or, or the image of him saying, I put your sins behind my back. What he means when he forgives you is he saying, I won't bring your sin up to you. I won't bring your sin up to others. And I'm not going to bring it up to myself. That's what God means when he says he forgives you. Again, he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. We sang about this other. Yet God, in his mercy, chooses not to remember your sin. God, in his grace, says, I'm not going to bring them up to you. I'm not going to bring them up to others. And I won't even bring them up to myself. And that's what we, as a church, have to say to one another. When we truly forgive, when someone truly repents, we don't say to someone, hey, I'll forgive you, but I never forget. Sometimes we like to say that, don't we? Hey, I forgive you, but I'll never forget. I'll never forget what you've done. That is not forgiveness. Now, what we say is, I'm not going to bring your sin up to you again. I'm not going to bring your sin up to others again. And I'm not even going to bring it up to myself to dwell on. I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to weaponize your sin against you because you're forgiven in Jesus. And I have forgiven you. What would that do to a church that forgives like that? What would that do for a marriage that forgives like that today? Reassure them of forgiveness. The second thing we see is to reapply God's comfort to them. Reapply again and again and again God's comfort to them. Paul tells us in verse 7, so after this punishment has been done, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Paul's saying you should move towards them, not away from them. You should move to care for them, to console them, to, to encourage them. To, to encourage someone means to put courage back into them. When they're filled with guilt and shame and, and they feel alone even when they're church, when they feel like their sin is still hanging over them, Oh, we're to put courage in them. We're supposed to say, brother, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. Sister, don't lose heart. Your shame has been covered by Jesus. 
But church, if we're not careful, we can say one thing with our words and then act another way. If we're not careful, we can extend forgiveness. Say you're forgiven while at the same time move away from people. Like we can say that the gospel is a gospel of grace while our withdrawal from them says that they are not enough. We can say, I forgive you with our lips while our lives express, I want nothing to do with you. Brothers and sisters, be careful that you're not saying one thing with your lips, saying, I forgive you, while your life moves away from people. Jesus doesn't comfort you like that. Jesus doesn't forgive you and then move away from you. Like he wants nothing to do with you. No, Jesus forgives you of all your sin. Jesus covers all your shame, and then he moves towards you to comfort you. To comfort you with himself. I mean, look at the alternative in verse 7. Look down at verse 7 at the alternative to extending this kind of comfort of Christ to people. It says, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. You should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that this is dangerous. This is dangerous. It's a danger to not move towards a brother and sister who is seeking repentance. It's dangerous not to move towards them, to leave them alone in their sin and their shame without moving towards them. The word overwhelmed in the Greek is actually used in the Gospels for someone who's overwhelmed or, or devoured by wild animals. Or for, for a ship lost at sea, being overwhelmed by the winds and the waves in the midst of a storm. Which I think are perfect images of what happens when someone's heart is feeling overwhelmed by their past sin. Overwhelmed by their present shame. Even when they've truly repented. Even when they are forgiven in Christ, they can still feel sin. They can still feel their shame over them. So Christ fellowship, would we rather people be overwhelmed by their sorrow or would we be, want them to be overwhelmed by our comfort? Would we want people at Christ fellowship to be overwhelmed by their sorrow and shame and sin? Or do we want them to be overwhelmed by the comfort of Christ that they receive from us? Because there's so many people in the church today. And when I say in the church, yes, the church in general, but there are so many people in this church, this room, this morning even, 
if left in their sin and in their shame, they will be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow if the church won't be the church. If the church doesn't move towards them like Jesus. If the church doesn't leave the 99 to go running after them. Christians for whom Christ died. Brothers who are forgiven. Sisters who are truly free in Christ. But their hearts are saying this morning, no one else is a failure like me. No one else is a mess like me. No one else is unlovable like me. No one else is unworthy like I am. And if we're not careful, we'll reaffirm the false gospel their hearts are believing by moving away from them. We will reaffirm that false gospel they're believing by moving away from them. Instead of preaching the real gospel, the true and freeing gospel with our lips and with our lives. This morning, are people at Christ Fellowship Church experiencing the excessive sorrow that, that Satan intends for them to wallow in? Or are they experiencing the comfort of Christ through God's people comforting them? Which one will it be at Christ Fellowship Church? See, sometimes our desire, you know, that our desire that they sit in silence, our desire that they really think about what they've done that they need to make the first move. I'm not going to move towards them. They need to make the first move. They got in this mess. They need to make the first move. That they really feel sorry for what they've done before I'm going to move towards them. All those things look nothing like Jesus. Look nothing like should be a warning for us as parents. Do, do we want them sitting in silence, sitting in shame, thinking about what they've done, moving away, being cold, giving the cold shoulder to our kids, or do we want to move towards them in love? Listen, I'm not talking about minimizing sin I'm not talking about minimizing the call that God calls us to be holy as he is holy. Listen, Christians must have godly sorrow. Christians must have real repentance where we turn from our sins and run to Jesus. But at the same time, I don't want to minimize the comfort of Christ that he longs for sinners to feel. I don't want to minimize at all the comfort of Christ that the Father, the Holy Father in heaven wants you to experience through the love of His Son and the application of His Spirit even today. This week as I was studying this passage, my heart constantly was being driven back to the story of the prodigal son. Maybe if you don't know this story, it's found in Luke chapter 15. 
Most of us, I think, probably know it, the story of the prodigal son. You know, sadly, the way we move away from people in their shame, the way we move away from people in their shame while while they're trying to walk in repentance, it's like instead of the prodigal son coming to a father who comes running to him, A father who won't let his son even finish his sentences of repentance. Instead of coming to a father who kills the fatted calf and who puts a robe on his back and puts a ring on his finger because he wants to celebrate that he's come home. Instead of wanting to be a picture of our heavenly father. Instead, the father in our false gospel. Gospel. And the story that we tell with our lives is in our false gospel, he's the father sitting on the porch in his rocking chair. He can't even look up at the sun because he's so disappointed. He just keeps saying, why are you here? You've, You've really messed up this time. You're a failure. You're not my son. You're not my daughter. Brothers and sisters, this is not the gospel. This is not the gospel. This is nothing like the God of all comfort who moves towards us. This looks nothing like Jesus who says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do people at Christ Fellowship experience the comfort of God, the Father of all comfort? Or do they experience the cold shoulder, which is a fake gospel? Paul says, reassure them that they're forgiven. Reapply to them again and again God's comfort. And then finally, reaffirm your love for them. Reaffirm your love for them. Paul knows that the gospel is at stake in how we call people to repentance. And the gospel is at stake in how we respond when sinners really repent of their sins. Paul knows that this man's sorrows If he's left to himself, if he's left to his sin, if the church doesn't move towards him, His soul could be overwhelmed like a wild lion devouring him. Like a crashing wave if God's people didn't do everything they could to move towards him. That's why Paul pleads in verse 8. Did you you hear it? In verse 8 he says, So I beg you. That's very strong language. So I beg you beg you, I plead with you to reaffirm your love for him. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Paul's saying, church, don't let this man for one second doubt that I love him. Don't let him for one second doubt that you love him. And don't let him for one second doubt that God really loves him. Because his heart's going to 
want to grow cold. His heart's going to want to feel shame. His heart's going to want to move away from Jesus. The language of the text actually teaches us that in the same way that we would remove someone who's unrepentant, like in Matthew 18, when we're gathered together and you remove someone who's not willing to let go of their sin, this passage is saying we should reaffirm our love for those who repent when we're gathered as the church, when we're gathered together. It's a great question for us this morning. Do people who've repented know without a shadow of a doubt that you love them? Do people who've repented of their sins know without a shadow of a doubt that you love them? Tell them. Don't assume they know it. Reaffirm it with your words that you love them, that you really love them, that you're for them, that you're not going anywhere. It might be surprising for people to hear, I love you, but not nearly as surprising as sinners who know what it's like to be saved by grace being silent. I say that again. It might be surprising when people hear from our lips that we love them, but not nearly as surprising as sinners who know what it's like to be saved by grace being silent. This is the gospel. This is the heart of Jesus. Jesus' desire is that when you look at the cross, that you will never doubt his love again. The cross is meant to be the final word, the eternal affirmation that God really loves you. It's not your best deeds that make you lovable. It's not your worst sins that make you unlovable. In fact, it's not even Jesus in the cross that makes you lovable, that makes you one over to God the Father in heaven. No, the Bible says, for God so loved the world, that God so loved you that he gave his one and only son. That while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. That's why the cross is nothing but a statement, an eternal affirmation that God really, really really loves you. Maybe the reason that you're here today is because God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, wants to reaffirm to you that He really loves you. Maybe you came in here this morning doubting if He cared at all. Well, God wants to pour his love into your heart by the Holy Spirit and let you know that he really loves you so much that he would give his only son to die in your place and to rise again. And the Bible says if you today would turn from your sins and run to Jesus, you're not going to find a Savior who's got his arms crossed, who's tapping, who's frustrated and disappointed with you. You're going to find a Savior ready to receive you. 
Father who wants to shower you with his grace and his love forever. You know, why is this so important to the Apostle Paul? I mean, why is he spending so much ink talking about forgiveness and receiving back? I mean, if you think about it, if anybody should be offended, it's Paul. The one who's most criticized is Paul. Yet Paul, because he knows the gospel, is quick to forgive and calls them to receive him back. Now, the reason it's so important, the reason it's so critical is because Paul knows that the gospel is at stake. Paul says he's writing this letter, writing this letter in verse 9 that, to test their obedience, to test their obedience, to, to see if they truly believe the gospel they say they believe by truly forgiving those who are forgiven. Do you truly believe the gospel you say you believe because you're truly forgiving those who are truly forgiven in Christ? But you know, there are, there are two other people who care way more than the Apostle Paul. There are two more who care even more about whether or not we're going to restore someone who repents. Two others who are leaning in towards the church, deeply invested in whether or not they're going to forgive the sinner. One is Jesus himself. Jesus is deeply invested that we extend forgiveness to one another. He's deeply invested for the glory of his great name and for the joy of the people of the church. He's deeply invested that we extend forgiveness to one another. Yes, he wants us to call sin, sin, but even just as important, he's deeply invested that we forgive those who repent. He does not want to move away. He doesn't want his people moving away from people that he would go to to rescue the one that left the 99. He doesn't want us to be stingy with our forgiveness when he's lavishing his grace upon sinners. He doesn't want his people to contradict the gospel they say they believe. But the other person that's deeply invested, is Satan. Satan is deeply invested that we withhold forgiveness from one another. It's exactly what Paul says in verse 11. He says, anyone whom you forgive, verse 10, I also forgive indeed what I've forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his design. See, Satan would love nothing more than for us to be unwilling to repent. Satan loves nothing more than for all of us to stay comfortable in our sin and never repent of it. Instead, love it, cherish it. 
But he's just as happy when Christians are unwilling to forgive those who repent. Because it's just as destructive to the gospel. It's just as deadly to the church. And so this morning, Jesus is saying, move towards those that I move towards. Lavish with grace those who I lavish grace upon. Reaffirm that you love those that I deeply love. And Satan is sitting there saying, please don't. Please don't forgive them. Please don't move towards them. Because it'll bring God too much glory. And it'll bring them too much joy to know that they're loved. I love Ray Ortland's formula for what gospel community really looks like. Here's his formula. He, he says it's gospel. This is what it takes to have true gospel community. Gospel plus safety plus time. Gospel plus safety plus time. And this is what he writes. Gospel plus safety plus time is what everyone needs. A lot of gospel and a lot of safety and a lot of time. Gospel, it's the good news for bad people through the finished work of Christ on the cross and the endless power of the Holy Spirit. Multiple exposures, constant immersion, wave upon wave of grace and truth according to the Bible. Safety, a non-accusing environment, no embarrass, embarrassing anyone, no cornering anyone, no shaming, but respect and, and sympathy and listening and understanding so that people can exhale and open up and unburden their souls. A church environment where no one seeking the Lord has anything to fear. Time. No pressure. Not even self-imposed pressure. No deadlines on growth. Urgency, but not hurry, because no one changes quickly. A lot of space for complicated people to rethink their lives at a deep level. God is patient. This is what our churches must be. Gentle environments of gospel plus safety plus time. It's where we're finally free to grow. Will we be that kind of church? Gospel plus safety plus time. Well, let it be said of Christ's fellowship around Bowling Green, Kentucky. That's the worst church you could go to if you want to stay comfortable in your sin. But it's the safest church if you want to walk in repentance. It's the safest church if you want to truly follow Jesus. May the people who walk in these doors, who, who experience this gospel community, leave here saying, so this is what it feels like to be loved by Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would
Help us be faithful to your gospel. Lord, help us to be faithful not only to call people to repentance, to call people to turn from their sins that they might find joy in Jesus. But Lord, would you help us by the power of your Spirit to move towards those who've repented, to welcome back, Lord, to restore them to that they might know what it's like to be loved and forgiven and know the comfort of Christ because they're a part of this church. Lord, especially us who are sinners saved by grace, sinners who know what it's like to be rebels against your will, rebels against you, and yet you sent your Son to die for us. And he rose again that we might have forgiveness that you might lavish your grace upon us, that we might know the freedom and the joy of being loved by you. Lord, let your sinners who are saved by grace lavish love and grace on others. So Lord, help us this morning that we might remind one another that we're forgiven, that we might reapply again and again and move towards one another to show comfort. And that, Lord, we might reaffirm that, Lord, we are loved by you and that we love one another. Lord, you do this for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.